You're listening to Word on Health, the report with its finger on the pulse of popular medicine with Paul Pennington. Word on Health, for your very best of health. It's a condition which evidence shows can take up to 13 years from onset of symptoms to diagnosis. It affects one in a 100 of us with an estimated half a million undiagnosed sufferers. To help boost awareness, a leading patient charity are asking us to hashtag shine a light on celiac. Hilary Croft is CEO of the charity Celiac UK. Celiac disease is a lifelong autoimmune condition that basically means that when you eat gluten, it triggers a reaction that destroys the lining of your gut and that can lead to all sorts of symptoms, diarrhoea, nausea, bloating, vomiting, fatigue. In children, it can inhibit growth can affect fertility, can give headaches, lots and lots of skin conditions, all sorts of problems as a result if it goes undiagnosed and untreated. What is gluten? Gluten is actually a protein that you find in wheat, barley or rye. There are some processes actually that can remove gluten from those, but the safest option is to avoid wheat, barley or rye entirely. Celiac disease is not an allergy or intolerance, but an autoimmune disease. Do we understand what causes our body's immune system to damage the lining of the gut when gluten is eaten? It is genetic. There is a gene that indicates the possibility of having celiac disease. And one of the things that we are trying to research is what are the triggers of what actually brings it on? Because you can have the gene without having celiac disease, but you can't have celiac disease without having the gene. There isn't a cure and the only treatment is a strict gluten-free diet. Without a blood test to confirm the presence of celiac, I understand misdiagnosis can occur of people who are diagnosed with irritable bowel syndrome, IBS, actually have celiac disease, not IBS, which is a little-known fact. And so it's always worth asking your GP if you're having tummy trouble just to check whether you've got any indicators that show that you might have celiac disease. It's an easy blood test in the first instance. Once upon a time, if you were diagnosed with celiac disease, you were able to get your gluten-free food on prescription. Is that still the case? It's a little bit of a postcode lottery. So depending on the area that you live in, about 60% of the areas still offer gluten-free prescribing on a limited range of products. So on bread, flour, flour mixes, pasta and crackers. In our bigger supermarkets, there's a a wide range of gluten-free products that are available. And I understand that you are working with the food industry to boost the numbers of cafes and restaurants offering gluten-free options. We have what we call our gluten-free accreditation scheme, which is various processes and training that we offer to the catering industry to be able to prepare gluten-free food confidently. We know that our members certainly look out for this gluten-free sign so that they know that they can eat safely in these outlets. Putting you in the picture, this is Word on Health with Paul Pennington. It's our most common serious neurological condition affecting around 500,000 people of all ages across the UK. But research shows just over a third of us have a very poor understanding of the condition. Professor Leigh Sanders is medical director of the Epilepsy Society. Epilepsy is a condition of the brain which happens when there is an abnormality in the cortical and the grey matter of the brain. And this may manifest in many ways. The commonest form of epilepsy is a convulsion people fall to the ground and they shake all over. Most of the time, the person can let a very normal life 
doing whatever everybody else is doing with some limitations. For instance, a person that has an active form of epilepsy cannot drive. When someone is diagnosed with epilepsy, that individual has had more than one seizure. Now, most of us believe there is only one seizure type, the convulsive tonic-clonic seizure that you described. But that's not the case, is it? That is correct. There are over 40 types of seizures. The convulsive seizure being the commonest. But people may have other forms of epilepsy and sometimes they can go unrecognized as such. They might be confused with another condition. Looking at the Epilepsy Society website, I see there are many possible causes of epilepsy and they may not always be found. Where are we at in treating the condition? For the great majority of people with epilepsy, the condition will be fully controlled. This means that people will stop having seizures with appropriate treatment. While epilepsy is different for every person, I know if you live with it, it's important to stay healthy through regular exercise, balanced diets, managing stress levels, avoiding excessive drinking and ensuring that you follow your treatment regime. Research suggests that we can all do something to help people living with epilepsy. A recent poll showed that 90% of us would immediately phone an ambulance if someone had a seizure. A quarter of the public wrongly want to restrain the individual and equally worrying, a similar number would want to put their fingers in the mouth of the person having a seizure. The majority of people that have a seizure, this seizure will stop on its own accord, usually within minutes. 99% of the time, there is no need to call an ambulance because by the time the ambulance arrives, this person will have stopped seizing and will soon be back to normal. We should call an ambulance, treat this as an emergency if the seizure is very prolonged, lasts more than five, six minutes. The most important thing to do is to make sure that this person is safe. If they are, for instance, near a body of water, if they fall in the public road, to protect them and make sure that their breathing is not affected. If they have a very tight clothing around their neck to sort of release that, that doesn't mean to say that we should put anything in the mouth of a person having a convulsive seizure. This is Word on Health with Paul Pennington. New cases of mouth cancer have reached record highs, claiming on average the life of one person every hour. Dr Nigel Carter, OBE, is Chief Executive of the Oral Health Foundation. This is totally preventable. This campaign is all about people looking out for signs and symptoms in their mouth which might mean that they've got a problem, getting them along early to their dentist or doctor to get these looked at and then get the appropriate treatment. So what are the signs and symptoms that we should be looking out for? Anything unusual in the mouth in particular, an ulcer that doesn't heal over a period of about three weeks, an unusual red or white patch, any lump, any change, perhaps a persistent hoarseness of the voice. So these are all signs that something might be wrong. In all probability, there's going to be nothing wrong at all. But if we get them checked out in those few cases where there is a more severe problem, we can do something about it quite easily. According to your data, the gender breakdown of cases is two men to every one woman. What are the risk factors? Smoking and drinking are the major risk factors. Smoking and tobacco use in particular also includes tobacco chewing, pan chewing in ethnic populations. 20 years on, despite the best efforts of your organisation and the oral health community, awareness of mouth cancer amongst the public sadly remains virtually unchanged. Why is that, do you think? long-term thing to get a decline in cases. What we're really looking at at this stage is let's get them seen early. It is still the case that a lot of people don't really think about mouth cancer. It's sort of not on their top 10 of cancers that they think they're at risk of. If you 
are a smoker, then you're probably thinking far more about lung cancer and things like that, not realising that there are other things that can be going on. Putting you in the picture, this is Word on Health with Paul Pennington. In June, July and August, the numbers of food poisoning cases double, linked, in part, to our love of eating al fresco. Bob Martin, a food safety expert with the Food Standards Agency, explains where we go wrong. They usually do the simple things wrong, things that they actually know they're supposed to do. The commonest cause of that is they're in a rush and they cut corners. We did some research and 90% of people said they didn't know how to store meat properly, which is covered and in the bottom of the fridge. And two-thirds of people said they didn't wash their hands after handling raw meat or fish. Giving ourselves enough time to prepare is important. What are the other simple steps we should follow, Bob? Get everything clean to start with and wash your hands frequently. It means that you're not going to spread germs from one thing to another. Don't start cooking too quickly. Wait for all the flames to die down. Let it get to a grey powder on top of the coals. You want residual heat rather than raging heat, which means you're more in control. You're able to decide how quickly your food gets cooked and you're able to cook it right the way through instead of charring it on the outside and still having it pink and dangerous in the middle. I know we've also got to be careful about how long we leave food outside. If you're keeping food for any length of time or if you've cooked it and you're going to keep it, you need to get it cool quickly and promptly. Putting it in the fridge, putting it in a shallow dish, make sure it's covered so that nothing else can contaminate it. And if you've got leftovers, make sure you eat them within a couple of days. If you're reheating anything, it's the same as for normal food. Make sure it's cooked all the way through to it's piping hot and don't reheat it more than once. Explain the risk associated with cross-contamination of food. Cross-contamination is something people don't always understand very well, but simply it's spreading germs around the kitchen and from one food onto another. If you've got something like some raw meat, it could drip onto a salad that's not going to get cooked and it could cause food poisoning from that. If you're using chopping boards, if you've used raw meat or fish on there, it needs to be very thoroughly cleaned before you move on to something that's not going to be cooked. Preferably, if you've got a separate chopping board, keep one for meat and one for other things. This is Word on Health with Paul Pennington. Nearly 9 out of 10 people with mental health problems have been affected by stigma and discrimination. Mental illness is common. Despite its prevalence, fuelled by fear and ignorance, society in general has stereotyped views about mental illness and how it affects people. Stigma can show itself in many different forms. However it manifests itself, it can have a significant impact on sufferers of mental illness, as leading London psychiatrist Dr Robin Lawrence explains. It prevents them seeking treatment. It adds to the isolation of the person suffering. It can add to the whole idea that the person is to blame rather than the person is suffering from an illness. Thus, a person starting to develop any form of mental illness can be beset with fears surrounding loss of control, confusion, the inability to believe that any help is available, and the shame which prevents them seeking help even perhaps from their GP. Thus, you have an illness inside a box of fear and shame, and the illness eats away inside whilst the person pretends, probably unsuccessfully, that things are going all right. So where do we begin in starting to shift public perception of mental illnesses? We need courage, we need clarity, we need information, and people have to get the news. The tide has turned in the treatment of depression, anxiety, bipolar affective disorder and indeed even schizophrenia. The treatments we have today are much, much more effective, patient-friendly, user-friendly and the treatment will involve negotiation between the sufferer and the treater to find the most effective treatment available, which will include physical and psychological treatments. Word on Health 
On Air and Online 52 Weeks of the Year with Paul Pennington. Word on Health, your personal prescription for your very best of health. 